0: Welcome back to Episode 5 of Supreme Myths. My guest today, and I'm really pleased to have him, uh, is Fred Smith, Jr., uh, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. Fred went to Harvard undergraduate and Stanford Law School, has honors from everything and everybody, Uh, clerked for a couple of judges, and then for Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Fred is one of our country's leading scholars on federal courts, federal jurisdiction, qualified immunity, uh, and constitutional law in general. Fred, welcome. Thanks for coming.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. The Last time we were together, we were talking on stage at a play, which was kind of fun. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that was
1: super
0: <laughs> A play called The Cake, everybody should see. Okay. Um, so, Fred, before we get into the like, law stuff, let's start with something more general. You clerked for Justice mm-hmm. Sonia Mayer in 2010, I believe. Is that right?
1: Uh, So Actually, it was a little after that. It was uh, 2013.
0: Okay. Sorry. 2013. uh, Without saying anything about the justice that would be revealing, can you kind of give us three myths? Because this is called Supreme Myths, and I start most of the podcast with myths. Three myths about clerking for the Supreme Court in general.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So the first one that comes to mind really is about the role of the shadow docket that is... Um, the cases, especially death penalty cases and uh, emergency stays and the like, um, it's a it's a big part of the work. Uh, and you know, in the summer in particular, it's uh, it's the primary action with respect to merits. Uh, yeah. Right. So when, when a clerk first arrives. That's one of the first things they're seeing, uh, and I don't know that people, when they first arrive, that they anticipate that on their desk immediately are going to be uh, death penalty cases, and that that really is uh, you know beyond the cert work. That's going to be their, their primary focus in the beginning, um, and I think it in the from the outset it shapes the stakes. Um, it. Um, reminds you of the importance of the work to people's lives in a really direct way rather than an abstract way, because there's someone who's, um, whose life is depending on um, on you getting it right. Um, and so I, 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 I think people don't really think about that uh, as much when they think about what a clerk does. Um, I, I think maybe one myth, potentially, if um, you know, we're for most clerkships, um, I suspect certainly for my prior clerkships, um, it, the experience is between your direct fellow co-clerks and your and your and your boss, right? So you're um, you're regularly interacting with uh, you know two or three other peers and uh, and your boss. The Supreme Court is different in that there's a lot of interaction across chambers. Um, and uh, and I, I didn't necessarily um, know that or expect that uh, because, right. you know, in a lot of other, not every other, I think that in the DC circuit, there's some of this too, but for, I think in most appellate court clerkships, uh, certainly in my Second Circuit clerkship, the experience was very much, you know, you were focused, it would be inappropriate actually um, to speak to another chambers about a case. Um, at the Supreme Court, it would be inappropriate never to, 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 to kind of shut down and ever have that sort of exchange. Um, And, uh, you know, there may be lots of reasons for that, including that the justices don't speak much to each other about the merits of cases. Um, They they have lunch regularly. They talk about um, their lives and baseball games and the like. Um, uh, Well, they used
0: to. They used to before COVID anyway.
1: (laughs) Well, right. Fair enough. I don't want to suggest that they're breaking the rules of quarantine. I'm, I'm sure that they're being very really careful and safe. But yes, back when I clerked, yeah. um, they were regularly uh, meeting for for lunch and so forth. And uh, and so as a result, a lot of the communication about the cases, about the merits of the cases themselves, um, you're kind of the ambassador for um, for um, your boss. Um, I can't readily think of a third. Uh, and so I'll just sort of maybe this is a, a cop out, but um, the emotional, I don't know that people think about the, the emotional difficulty um, in turn, especially um, if, you, uh, if you happen to be on the side that's losing a lot. <laughs> uh, yes. yeah. And the, you know, like when, I, when I think about the clerkship and what I gained from it and what I learned from it, one of the things I learned from it was the importance of moving on, the importance of after a loss, taking a deep breath, looking to a new day and per, and having a perpetual optimism a perpetual yeah. belief that you can get to five is, is the optimism that happens at the court and I think it's uh it's you know you could extend it to other aspects of, of life um but just you know that you know, maybe justice Kennedy, right because well, he was there when I was there and I suppose now and maybe justice Gorsuch maybe the chief um uh, you kind of you, you you have to do that you can't you can't be kind of licking your wounds or crying about um, about the last loss, no matter how important it was and how many lives have been impacted. That's
0: awesome stuff, Fred. Thank I actually have have several reactions to all three of those things. On the la- on the last point, a trite reaction, but uh, my favorite show music song, maybe of all time, is from a play a musical called Sunday in the Park with George by Stephen Sondheim, and there's a song called uh, Move On, and actually Mandy mm-hmm. Patankin, who whose name people might recognize, has said that's his favorite show music song of all time. And the point of it is sometimes you just have to move on. If you have writer's block or something terrible happens, it's, it's hard to do. But I see I, – I, I would imagine being on the losing side of a lot of heartbreaking Supreme Court cases would be very difficult as a clerk. And then you have to move on to the next one. Um, on the uh, on the clerks getting together thing, this is a little federal court nerdy-ish, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I ended up being co-counsel with a guy named Charlie Wilson when I was back at the Department of Justice. His client was the uh, United States Catholic Conference, and we worked on a parochial school aid case way back in the 90s. And Charlie was Justice Warren's law clerk, and Charlie wrote Flast versus Cohen, which law professors (laughs) will recognize as a taxpayer standing case. You're an expert in this stuff. And Charlie has told me um, that the clerks were all together before – after the argument and before the conference, uh, before the conference ended, all guessing how it was going to come out and what was going to happen. And, 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 and they all were just sharpening their pens at the time. No computers, of course. Um, and, and that struck me as, a, as kind of, I like a painting of that, of all the law clerks waiting for this monumental and disastrous decision to come down. Um, so that, yeah. And the last thing is okay. on the death penalty, I, 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 guess, I guess most people don't know that. That that clerks have to wade through these death penalty petitions, right? I imagine that's really hard for someone who's against the death penalty. I don't know if you're against it, um, but I assume you have sympathy for those who are against it, at least. And well, are you against the death penalty?
1: I uh, I do t- I do tend to be against the death penalty. Yes, yeah. so uh, that must be really yeah, hard. I, mean, I tend to be against the state um, taking the life of people who do not constitute an imminent threat, um, right. and right. because right. of that. Uh, I tend to be against the death penalty.
0: Okay, um, so I imagine that would be very emotional and very hard. You mentioned the last thing about this. You mentioned the shadow docket. I think Professor Will Bode may have came that, coined that phrase.
1: I think that may be right. So he has invoked it in some important pieces, um, as has uh, uh, Steve Vladek uh, has right. talked a lot right. about the shadow docket right. as well. Right. And I don't, right. but yeah, but I th- but I think you're right that Will um, was the first to invoke it.
0: People who are watching this or listening to this, if anybody is watching and listening to this, um, will know who know me, know that the reason I wrote Originalism is Faith was because of Will Bode and Steve Sachs, uh, two law professors who I have incredible respect for in all of their work except originalism which I think is wildly puzzling. And I wanted to figure out why two smart people would say such puzzling things. Um, but I like Will a lot. I think he's done amazing work on Supreme Court transparency. So, um, okay. Absolutely. Um, I want to give you a few minutes, if you want, to have, to share your thoughts about the term that just ended. I know it's now a month later. Uh, but, I, you know, I think it's still fresh in a lot of people's minds. Do you have any takeaways you want to share about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I <sighs> – This isn't particularly original, especially having listened to some of your earlier podcasts. Um, (laughs) I asked one person. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, But, you know, my biggest takeaway is that the court has, at least for a while, rescued its sociological legitimacy. Um, And if you you think back just a few months ago to the fact that one of the most moderate people running for the Democratic nomination, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Mm -hmm. uh, former class. Of mine um, that one of the centerpieces of his campaign at one point uh, was reshaping federal courts and in general but also in particular the United States Supreme Court um, and you know you you know you have the um, of course the Yale Law Journal piece um, uh, that kind of is invited these questions about um, Legitimacy. Right. Dan, uh, I'll, Dan I'll Epps. That I was-
0: Dan Epps, and I forget who his co-writer was.
1: Dan, yeah, Dan Epps's piece, and I happen to be one of the reviewers for that piece for for Yale Law Journal. And part of what I said was, you know, part of part of why I think you should publish this piece is that it is this will be an important historical artifact to the level of anxiety that there is right now about the court, and for that reason alone, it deserves very serious uh, consideration in a very top law review. Um, so now we fast forward just a bit. Um, I think that for uh, President Biden, um, if he uh, ends up in office, I think for him to propose, you know, reshaping the Supreme Court, it would it would it would be taken. A lot of people take great umbrage to it. Uh, it. I don't think it would get any any traction. I think it would absolutely backfire. Um, and so if I'm right about those two things, that this was a real uh, legitimate view just a few months ago, and that now that would be seen as almost crazy, um, you know, one might ask, well, what happened in between? Well, something happened in between, We're in the court has, or, or has rescued its uh, sociological legitimacy. And so I think that the uh, the Title VII case and DREAMers and and, and so forth, um, uh, that collectively, um, you know, and, and and also the public seeing justices vote uh, differently than they perceive um, uh, justices' ideological stances, um, that, uh, that that's put the Supreme Court in a much better place than it was.
0: I feel like I want to say that all of that, which I think is accurate, Justice Roberts knew, counted on and played a major role. Maybe not in the Title VII case because there were five votes for that anyway. But uh, uh, I think what you're saying Justice Roberts was aware of. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I don't know because I'm not there and he's yeah. uh, he tends to be a private person despite Josh Blackman's recent uh, <laughs> pieces on the subject. Uh, yeah. He appears to be, by all appearances, he appears to be a very – um, you know, a very private person and uh, holds his, his cards pretty close to the vest. I, I don't. I mean, I, I didn't clerk for him, but I don't even suspect that he was um, always entirely um, transparent in every respect, right? With his with his clerks. Yeah. Um, so, I, I just that part I don't know, but um, but that's what I suspect based on his his um, his public persona. I
0: would um, bet a, I would bet a lot. So I bet. Um, well, let me ask you but, this. If every case this term came out the same way, except the abortion case, and if in the abortion case where, where uh, Justice Roberts joined with the liberals in upholding the same law the court, I'm sorry, striking down the same law the court struck down five years ago, four years ago, uh, if, if that case had come out differently with a very anti, we're almost about to overturn Roe and Casey type opinion, I think that would have changed everything, don't you?
1: Yeah, I think we'd be in a different place, even despite the DACA case and so forth. And, and I think part of that is not just because of the stakes of, with respect to abortion. Some of that is because the factual similarity to the case, to, um, to the Louisiana case and the whole women's right. health case from just a few years before, right. um, that I think a lot of people would have said, wait, that's wait, So you can literally just, just a yeah. mere shift uh, in, the, in the makeup of the court is enough. To just literally change uh, the outcome of a case just decided just a few years before, surely there's more to it than that. Surely precedent matters, some, um, and that you know that case in particular does suggest, or, or that that the chief um, uh, takes precedent um, seriously. Now, does it also mean, right, that he? Um, I'll put, I'll put it to you like this: so I can't read his mind, but I can say more broadly. Um, that I think that for a court to examine what its institutional role is vis-a-vis the other branches and vis-a-vis the public, um, for the court to, uh, to take seriously the fact that it has limited capital, it doesn't have any, doesn't have any economic capital as such, it doesn't have uh, the power of the sword, right, going back to Hamilton and the like. No purse, no sword. Exactly, the no purse, no sword. Yeah. So if they don't have the purse and they don't have the sword, uh, they they can't even enforce their own judgments, right? Um, you know, I don't I, I don't think it's illegitimate for a court to to be aware of that and to think about that, and I think it would be almost hubris not to. Um, you know, I sometimes think about um, what would happen, right? If if in a case like Trump versus Hawaii, the court does the, the does the, the other thing. Uh, and said so this is unlawful. And then you have uh, a terrorist attack or, 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 you know, or something of that sort take place at the hands of someone who happened to have been from one of the banned countries. And uh, I don't want you to imagine President Trump being the one to say it, uh, <laughs> but imagine another president very calmly saying, well, uh, in my view, uh, <laughs> uh, to ensure that. Uh that the American people are safe. So commander in chief, that's how I read my constitutional responsibility. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> the Supreme court has one and not. we do two. All right. And and then proceeds to say that they're gonna re-implement uh right. the exact same regulation, right? right? And, yeah. it, and just show that the the that the court um how limited the court's power ultimately is. I, I think I think that for a chief to think about that is is a reasonable thing.
0: So what's fascinating to me, I, I about that answer. Um, is in 2012, September 2012, after the Obamacare case was decided, when Justice Roberts famously voted to uphold the law while gutting half of it, but nevertheless upholding it more or less. Um, I had a phone call. Com- this is public knowledge. I'm, I was very friendly. I'm very friendly with Judge Posner, who at the time was was still a judge. And I was screaming at him—we screamed at each other a lot—that everything Robert said in that case was wrong legally. He got all three things wrong. got Medicaid wrong. He got Commerce Clause wrong. He got Tax Injunction Act wrong. got everything wrong. And the reason he did it was a mix of political election coming up type factors and institutional reputation of both himself and the court. And Posner yelled back at me, what's wrong with that? That's exactly what a judge should do. The institutional capability of the court and capacity of the court is absolutely a consequence. Posner, of course, the great pragmatist, a consequence that a court should absolutely look at. And and then I said back to him, well, that's fine for you because you admit it. (laughs) If Roberts had written Obamacare or the abortion case, either one, saying, you know, and he almost said this in the abortion case this term. It would be unseemly of us to overturn a case four years ago. I mean, he almost said that. Um, But in in NFIB versus Sibelius, if he had said, you know what, we're not going to strike down this president's signature legislation four months before an election, impact the election, because that's beyond our capability, I would have been happy with that.
1: Do you think, I mean, think about that line, though, in Sibelius, where he says that people have to live with the consequences of their own political decisions. I mean, is that not that? I mean, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how far a person is a judge is supposed to go in terms of kind of leaning on that. But I think he gave us a little bit of some hints of that. Um, I would like, more. I would
0: like total honesty, but that's just me. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I, I hear you. I'm, I'm, you know, I've written a little bit about transparency when it comes to potential limits on judicial power. And uh, you know, I'm on record of kind of generally liking transparency too. Um, all you know that said. You know when it comes to the political economy of judicial review, um, I think that's part of it too. I, mean, I think. I mean, I think like you know, part the reasoning matters, and if part of the reasoning is it's political, then that sort of undermines some of the political economy of judicial review uh, as well. Um, and so this, you know, it's a it's a, it's a complex landscape. And um, I'm speaking of, tran-
0: sorry. of sorry, speaking of transparency. Last question before qualified immunity. Uh, so this week. Uh, CNN ran a four-part series—or last week, or whenever it was—a four-part series uh, by Joan Biscot—I can't pronounce her last name, but Joan Biscot, who who is a very good writer and journalist and um, has written numerous books on the Supreme Court. And I, I know her personally, and I trust her. I think she's a good reporter. However, <laughs> she reported about leaks from the justices' very secret private conference that no one is allowed in except the justices, not even the clerks. That happens right after your arguments. And she absolutely said this and that happened at this conference, this and that happened at that conference. Josh Blackman, who you mentioned, went, I'm going to say it, apeshit over this yesterday, Um, uh, basically calling for Roberts to resign (laughs) over the leaks. It's kind of crazy. I like Josh, but it's kind of crazy. Um, I like like you. I mean, I've written a lot about Supreme Court transparency. You have too. Uh, We probably agree on most things about cameras and ethics and stuff. I think this was a huge mistake. Actually, I'm against her doing this. I don't think I don't think it was appropriate. It was appropriate for her to report from anonymous sources on what happened in the conference room. I'm curious what you think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with that. Um, the question, though, right? Like, how long is that true? Right. So, I mean, do we feel this way because it happened just a few months ago, or we feel differently? if— she was reporting on something from 2020, 2010 20 or twenty or 2000. And if we do feel differently, then why do we feel differently? Right. Um, yeah, so, um, but yeah, no, that, that, I know that, I won't say that she shouldn't have reported it, but certainly whoever leaked it shouldn't have leaked it. Um, now, was it a justice? I don't know. She has a good relationship with justices. Um, but I will note that typically after a conference, um, I don't think this is going too far to say because, I mean, this is, of course, this happens. So after a conference, the justice returns to chambers and they have to tell the clerks what happened. Right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Otherwise, right. how can the clerk be a faithful agent in, right. uh, you know, for um, uh, on behalf of their boss? Right. So um, and so at conference, this happened and then and they just read the notes and then this justice said this and then this justice said this and this justice was concerned about this and then and then this justice said that right and and uh, and so you 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 the you know the you do have only the nine people who are in the room but you do have also 20 you know over 20 people or so or 30 people or so who um who have a pretty good snapshot of what happened um it, And, you know, but I, you know, obviously if any of the clerks or clerks in particular, if any of them did it, but I also would say if any of the justices did it, yeah, that's, that's highly, highly inappropriate.
0: My completely unsubstantiated, irresponsible and wrong take on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think Ginny Thomas is a very likely suspect. (laughs) I I don't know. I do, but that's just me. Okay. Um, All right. So we are in a moment of time. Uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement, and the horrific atrocities. And just yesterday, I saw the entire video of the George Floyd encounter. I guess some British newspaper got it, and my wife and I both just broke out down crying watching it. I mean, it was, it was that awful. Um, it kind of felt voyeuristic, but I thought we had to watch it, and it, it, it was terrible. I mean, it was worse than I even imagined. I imagined the worst. Um, and so I think to non-law professors, maybe non-lawyers, uh, the idea that police get away with these kinds of things, and not in terms of losing—well, they, sometimes they get away with it altogether. But, but often police brutality happens in the context where somebody is injured, survives, and then sues them for damages. Or when any state official um, violates someone's constitutional rights in a way that causes damage, uh, we have this defense that's in the news a lot these days— called Qualified Immunity. You're an expert on this. Can you do kind of a Qualified Immunity for dummies to start? And just so, you know, non-lawyers watching this can understand. I don't, I'm not calling my audience dummies. Let me be clear about that.
1: But, um. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they won't hear it that way. Um, <laughs> so Qualified Immunity takes place. Uh, typically, this is a, this happens when someone sues for a federal constitutional violation, although it sometimes kicks in with respect to other federal rights. Um, and it happens when you're suing a government official. It could be a state official, it could be a local official, it could be a federal official. Um, but you're suing them for damages for violating your rights, essentially, right? So, uh, and you're su- and you're not suing the government, right? You're you're literally suing the officer, the government official who violated your rights, and you're suing them for damages. We call this in their individual capacity. Um, so that's when qualified immunity kicks in. Um, and not to get too it's nuanced with it, but it's hard as a Fed Courts professor not to, right? So, um, just to talk about the except, we're not talking about a president, we're not talking about uh, prosecutors, and we're not talking about judges, and we're not even talking about legislators. But we're talking about everybody else. We're talking about police officers, we're talking about teachers, other government officials, That's other right. than but state state officers,
0: not federal officers. We're not talking federal. I mean, there is no cause no. of action against federal officers. so.
1: No, well, uh, well, that's, that, that is coming close to true. But no, I mean, there is technically a cause of action against federal officials, right? Biggins still technically exists, um, allowing you to sue a federal official in their individual capacity for damages, although the court has cut back on that more and more in recent years. And qualified immunity kicks in in that context as well. So qualified immunity takes place, whether it's a federal official or a state official or a local official. Um, and uh, it, but not for prosecutors, not for legislators, not for uh, not for judges, and that well,
0: who have absolute immunity from
1: such. Things. Exactly. The reason why it doesn't kick in for them, right? For that is that they get absolute immunity, right? So, <laughs> uh, um, so the uh, and, it, and even that's a little more nuanced. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole entirely. But yes, they get far more immunity. We call it absolute immunity than uh, than everyone else. So for everyone else, including for our purposes, police officers. Um, you look to whether or not they violated a, you know, a clearly established right that a reasonable person would have known at the time of the violation. Um, and that standard over time has seemed to get higher and higher and higher. Uh, so a lot of courts, in, especially in excessive force cases, they seem to demand a prior case with facts that are very similar. Right? We call this the materially similar standard. So you need to be able to point to a case where an officer uh, – violated someone's rights under very similar circumstances. Um, and that can sometimes be a, a quite high barrier. There's also these kind of rhetorical glosses on qualified immunity that you see. They're not new glosses, but you just, it's, a, it's a matter of emphasis. Um, so you see things like, you know, uh, all but the plainly incompetent are entitled <laughs> to qualified immunity, right? You see these, those sorts of rhetorical glosses. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and when you see language like that, it's very likely the plaintiff is going to lose when you see language, like, um, you know, any when, anytime an officer uh, has fair notice and fair warning that what they're doing is violating the law, the plaintiff is probably going to win. And when you see the kind of plainly incompetent kind of language, you're probably signal that the plaintiff is going to lose. I haven't empirically, I, I don't, I, I. I don't have the data to back that up. Uh, I'm collecting it, <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I strongly suspect it to be true. But in a, in a nutshell, that's uh, that's the doctrine of qualified
0: immunity. So my my friend on the other side of the political spectrum, Clark Nelly, who um, is a Second Amendment guy, and I'm I'm not. Um, he works for Cato, or he heads Cato now. But he actually has been one of the great attackers of qualified immunity over the last few years, and. Um, this is not an area I've studied factually I understand the law but I he claims and I'm curious your reaction to this uh, he he claims that in at least police cases the, the universe of police cases because it does apply far broader than police cases and I, sure. I want to get into that in a minute but for police cases um, I don't want people to think that we all know police can't use excessive force for example under the Fourth Amendment unless there's you know they're in, they're in bodily harm's way or something. But that's not enough to defeat qualified immunity. What he says, and I'm just curious what you think, so let's say a police officer finds some new and terrible way to beat somebody. Unless another police officer has used that same method over the head with a pan or something, then in many jurisdictions that will get the police officer qualified immunity and that's where Clark gets off the train and says that's ridiculous. The police officer knows he can't use excessive force or whatever the right terminology is. But it has yeah. to be the same so that, excessive force,
1: is that right? That is more or less correct. Uh, so, and, and, uh, and so this this used to. Uh, really get Justice Stevens upset in particular, right? Yeah. So he so called this the, the reasonably unreasonable line of cases, driving crazy. He's just like, well, the, we already decided it was unreasonable because it's the court. That's otherwise it wouldn't have been a violation. So we know that the officer acted unreasonably. So, so, the, so you know, so the court uh, has had to kind of construct this other body of law, or has chosen to, um, for you know, for well, was it reasonably unreasonable or was it unreasonably? right and that's that's kind of that's where qualified immunity kicks in and in order to determine whether it was reasonably unreasonable or unreasonably unreasonable yeah what we look to is uh, the state of the law at that time in, in prior cases and um, you know I'm thinking about a case last summer out of Georgia where an officer, um, without provocation, shot this person's family, shot at this person's family dog, and instead struck an 11 year old. Right. Um, and they weren't, they not even. The suspect was nowhere around. Actually, they were at the, they weren't even in the right place. They uh, and and uh, and the court said, well, but they were trying to strike the dog. They weren't trying to strike the child. And so, all of our prior cases involve instances in where in someone where someone was trying to shoot. A person, not where they were trying to shoot a dog, and therefore qualified immunity, right? So that's just that's an example, right? Or I'm thinking about there's a Ninth Circuit case because I mean all circuits are kind of getting this message. There's a Ninth Circuit case called West where officers uh, they had they actually were told by the person who lived there, you can come into the house. Here's the key, you can come in. They didn't want to do it that way. Uh, they decided um, they uh, they so they sh- they put holes into the house and they put tear gas into the home, and the resident of the home who tried to give them the key couldn't live there for months. She and her kids were couldn't live in their own house for months. Um, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, but in prior cases where we said excessive damage of a home violated the Fourth Amendment, you had things like the officers saying that it, they did it because it was cool. And here, none of the officers said that they did this because it was cool. They said they did it because they thought someone inside might have a BB gun, right? So, so you, so. Um, those are just examples. I mean, I could go all. I could. Yeah, go all. Yeah. I could. I could give you many examples of cases yeah. where the court said or court says there weren't materially similar facts. And it um, in a prior podcast that I did, someone used the word that it almost becomes a meme uh, uh, when it's like, well, this prior case, but not it. But the prior case, it was this, and here it was that. Um, uh, and I and uh, I I I, can't, I have come to appreciate that construction of it. Um, I mean, it does sometimes still
0: I like that. So let's back up a minute, though. So, again, um, mostly lawyers and law professors are watching this, but for those who are not, when someone sues a state officer, any state officer, for violating their rights, whether it be federal statutory rights, constitutional rights, doesn't matter, what they are doing is they're suing under a federal statute, not the Constitution, that gave them that right Section 1983, of course, which is this transformative civil rights statute passed after the Civil War. And the question I want to ask, and that's that's always the case, almost always the case. That's where the stat, that's the cause of action. What I want to ask you is that statute does not have qualified immunity anywhere within the text of that statute. And I don't even think, I don't know if qualified immunity as such was around when the statute was passed. Which no, has wasn't. led yes. s- yeah. some critics to say, I think Justice Stevens one of them, th- this is made up. Like, this is just a, a made up defense that the Supreme Court has concocted out of thin air. And if Congress wanted to put this defense in, they could put it in, but they didn't. What's your reaction to that?
1: Yeah, right. So, I mean, it is the case that it's not in the statute, right? So, so, great. So, anytime you're suing a state or local official, um, section 1983 is the relevant statute when you're suing them for violations of a federal right um, and – or violations of a federal constitutional right in particular. Um, And yeah, I mean, it it says – it begins with the language every person, and that, that language every person references state actors who are violating federal rights, including federal constitutional rights. Right. And so how do you get from every person to qualified immunity? Um, you can't textually. You, can, you can't do it as a matter of text and you can't do it as a matter of history. Right? You can't really even say um, this was the state of the law in the 18, in 1871 when the Ku Klux Klan Act was adopted. And therefore, we assume that Congress adopted this, but for them saying that they didn't. That's not that's not the story. It's um, it's a common law development story. Um, which, um, you know, which, which, by the way, doesn't render it inherently illegitimate. Um, but in the early 1980s, um, in a case called Harlow, the Supreme Court said that what it was doing was balancing competing considerations. Um, it was balancing wanting to not deter um, uh, officers I and mean, other government officials from being able to do their jobs. Um, and, but it did want to deter unconstitutional conduct. And this is the balance that was struck. Now it's based on a lot of um, empirical falsehoods, among other things. But but that was the idea, and that's how it came into being. Um, and uh, but yeah, with that said, right? What I've written, what I've said is, we are in this moment where formalism seems to reign, at least in the rhetoric from the court. That wasn't true in 1982. It, it's true now. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're, it's killing kind me, of, Fred, it's,
0: you're killing me as you're killing me as an, an, well, as, as an anti-formalist all the way down. You're killing me. But go on. You're right. Go on.
1: I mean, I think it's where we are, though. And so, um, you know, it's 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 interesting to juxtapose qualified immunity and the court's ultimate rejection of a lot of qualified immunity cases. This year. They, they, they could have they could. There were lots of cases on their docket that presented this issue. They didn't take them. And it's interesting to contrast that with the language from the Title VII case, which is about text, text, text. The text leads you where it leads you. It doesn't matter where it leads you. It may lead you <laughs> somewhere odd, but it leads you where it leads you. The text, 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 text. And then, oh, but, oh, but this 1983 qualified immunity, I don't know about that.
0: Exactly. By the um, way, just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just so you know, just I, I want to throw out there, because I've said this now in several blog posts and things, any, the Title VII case was not about text, full stop, but that's another podcast. Gorsuch didn't – it's not about text. The text in that case could have gone either way. He said it was about text, but it was about values. I don't want to get on the train. We're not going to agree on
1: that. We're not yeah. going to agree on that, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I do, I, do think, I do think the text – I'll bring you back to talk about that, okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> um,
0: so on qualified immunity, do you have – so I, I think almost everybody – Thinks it's in a state of disrepair. Like something needs to give in the doctrine somehow. What What's your solution? That. Do you have a solution for it?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a few things that could help. Um, one thing that could help is expanding municipal liability. Uh, so su- uh, expanding the circumstances in which you can sue the employer. Right. Um, because I, I think that if there was the sense that you could get any kind of justice in some of these cases. Um, then there would be less outrage. But you know, but in the in the case I described with respect to the shooting at the dog, for example, right? You can't you can't sue the you can't sue the city, um, because you can't typically sue a city for the acts of their employees. You can in almost any other context, any other tort context, essentially, you can under this theory of at superior. You can't here. If we expand it, the circumstances for respondeat superior liability. Um, you know, I've proposed you, know, you could expand it to circumstances in which there is no other remedy available at law, right? So where qualified immunity or other doctrines kicked in, then and maybe only then you should be able to sue the city. So that's, so that's one possibility, expanding municipal liability. Another possibility would be to kind of um, just tinker with the standard to place the burden on the defendant rather than on the plaintiff. Right? So the, the defendant has to point to it. If, if they violated the Constitution, they have to be able to point to a case um, that made them reasonably, reasonably believe that they could do that. Right? And so you kind of take seriously this fairness concern, uh, but you're not kind of making the burden, putting the burden on the planet to jump through hoops to point to cases that didn't, uh, that didn't exist. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, mean, I think those are some uh, ways to tinker with it. Um, there are some people who have proposed getting rid of it altogether, but I've, I've actually argued that there, there's something to be said for some taking into account some of the fairness concerns. And I think the burden shifting could potentially do that.
0: So I, I um, like you, I teach federal courts, but I don't focus on the civil rights part of it. I do other things. But I, I'm, I had a passing familiarity with qualified immunity. And I would have been four months ago, you know either destroy it altogether or, or or make it reduce it tremendously. But I have a new thought about it because I was writing a paper on free speech on campus um, on a gamut of uh, public universities on, on a gamut of issues. But one of the issues was public schools sanctioning or or expelling or punishing students for online, off campus online social media speech very inflammatory or something like that. And there are a bunch of lower court cases, state court and federal court cases, on that issue. There's no Supreme Court law on that issue at all. Zero help. And very little court of appeals law. And some of these Mm -hmm. cases are hard. The facts don't matter. But, you know, a student posts something that maybe we would punish them for, maybe we wouldn't. It's a close call. When they get punished, they sue. And in virtually every case, the lower courts have said there's no law on this subject so they've qualified immunity. And they don't even go into the First Amendment. Like, they don't, they don't even talk about, you know, Georgia State, a public school, unlike Emory. Georgia State punishing a student for online speech. Well, maybe that was wrong. Maybe that was right. But they've qualified immunity anyway because there's no law on the subject. And, and what occurred to me was some of those cases are really hard. Like, they're really hard. And, a well, and I think you talk about this in your article. A well-meaning administrator who doesn't know what the law is really doesn't. I mean— the most famous First Amendment scholar in the country, Jeff Stone, wouldn't know what the law is on this because there's no law on it. To punish them, to punish them with the law is so unclear, even if they made the wrong decision, strikes me as inherently unfair. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's where kind of my burdens, uh, um, flipping idea, or and it's, really, it's not my idea. I've, there's been some other folks— we kind of I don't, so I'm kind of trying it out here. <laughs> uh, there, you know, the people in the background. There's some for course professors who've been talking about some of this. Yeah, uh, you know, sometimes with with um, civil rights litigators and trying to and trying to find exactly the right balance. Um, yeah. And and maybe that gets at that. But yes, that is you're right. I have written specifically about that concern. Yeah. Um, the and the example I give. I mean, your example is great. Um, the example I give is post Obergefell. Uh, if you know there was a county clerk. Who previous prior to Obergefell denied someone a license, same-sex like couple of marriage license, uh, and then they got sued, right for for right. for, for pre Obergefell, right? That can't be right. Like that just can't right. be right, right, right? So, um, and so so I do think I do think you know, so that can't be right, but it also can't be right that we're in this bizarre world that we're in. Um, neither of those can be right, and so there has to be another balance. Maybe burden shifting gets you at that balance or something to the extent of, you know, or something like this is a new, a, you know, a new, I know that the court probably is really uncomfortable with calling something a new right, but we <laughs> do it in the hated sure. context when it comes to T, right? We, sure. we recognize the difference between an extension of a prior precedent versus, uh, versus a new right altogether. So there's other contexts where we do this. I, I do think that if the answer is trying to focus on qualified immunity and qualified immunity alone, that's probably where the answer is. But I again remind that it doesn't that's not where the action has to be. <laughs> right. I think I think that people are upset because there's no remedy, right? And uh if you expand municipal liability to some meaningful degree, um then I think you have would have less anxiety about qualifying
0: Yeah, I love I love your solution, yeah. Fred. And your your article on you many, but but one of the most recent ones in Notre Dame, law review, I recommend to everybody. It, it's really good. Um so I, I'm, I'm, I may be breaking all podcast rules now. I, this is my fifth one, so it wouldn't be surprising. I, I want to go back. So uh, thank you for that by qualified immunity. I thought that was really helpful. I know. Oh, thanks for uh, um, I want to go it. back to clerks getting together after the conference, uh, clerks talking to each other, Supreme Court clerks. But I want to do uh, this. Yeah. So here's a warning to the audience. We're about to get a little federal court geeky. But if you stick with us, the punchline will be good. I, it's going to come from me. But it's a good punchline. Can you – and I know you're going to appreciate this. So that's one of the reasons I want to do this. So I want to go back to this Flask versus Cohen case and how it was written because I I know the person – he passed. I I know exactly how that case was written. It raises a very interesting question of federal courts, jurisdiction, and constitutional law. Under Article 3, can someone go into court and effectively say the government is doing something illegal? I'm mad. I'm angry about this. I want you courts to stop it. Not a question of I've lost money or I've lost um, you know, something tangible, but I'm just angry that I'm not living in a country where the government is doing something unconstitutional. And bef- prior to FLAST, can you give the law prior to FLAST from Frothingham kind of on to FLAST and then we'll get to FLAST?
1: Yeah. So typically the law is, um, with a very narrow exception that FLAST created, typically you can't. Uh, sue a government simply because they violated your rights and you were, and you were a taxpayer, right? So, so the mere fact that you pay taxes into a system that violated constitutional rights is not a sufficient basis for someone to have standing to go into federal court, at least, um, and sue for the vindication of those interests.
0: And the reason the Frothingham didn't use the word standing, they, they basically said you're not injured in a way that gives you the right to go before the court is effectively. What they That's said. Right.
1: The word standing picked up more um, more steam beginning in the 1930s and Frothingham is from a decade right. earlier. But, but, but it is the same concept.
0: And then there was this case with Justice Black where he was in the Senate and then he got on the Supreme Court. And his salary he, – he, Congress had voted for a salary raise for Supreme Court justices. He voted for that. But there's a constitutional provision that specifically says you can't do that. And somebody sued and said Justice Black can't be on the Supreme Court because his, he voted for a salary raise for the justices. And the court said the same thing, right? You, the fact that whether it's unconstitutional or not doesn't matter. You don't have standing, right? Right.
1: Yeah, across, across the board, right. Um, in order for there to be a case or controversy under Article Three, according to the court, over the last few decades, yeah. um, where they've increasingly insisted that this is a constitutional doctrine and not some other sort of doctrine. Okay. Um, they have they have made they've made clear their view that, um, that that the Constitution demands that the person who brings the suit has to personally have an injury, and that uh, the mere fact that one is a taxpayer is not sufficient to confer such an injury.
0: So then we get to Flass versus Cohen in 1968, I think maybe the, the, the epitome of the Warren Court, you know, around the epitome of the Warren Court's aggressiveness. And uh, the federal government in 1964 gave a zillion bagillion dollars to schools all over the country, including private religious schools. Now, most of those had to be in poor neighborhoods. But still, Catholic and Orthodox Jewish schools got aid from the federal government. And, and a public interest group sued. And said, this is unconstitutional, the Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. They did. Um, And the question was, did they have standing? And did they have the kind of injury sufficient to give them the personal stake in the case? And the court held – the
1: court held? Uh, The court held that with respect to the Establishment Clause – and I'll go further. The court the court apparently held, so I'm <laughs> going to layer on the, the doctrines thereafter, the cases thereafter. Yeah. The court apparently held uh, that for establishment clause cases that involve a congressional expenditure of funds, um, uh, then under those circumstances, a taxpayer can sue. Um, and the theory is rooted in Congress's spe- specific appropriations power. That So when the Congress appropriates funds, in a way that violates the Establishment Clause, then a taxpayer can sue, and it's unique to that context.
0: In both the Frothingham case and the Justice Black case, Congress had appropriated funds, uh, but in, that were exactly. allegedly illegal, unconstitutional. Right. But in neither case were the plaintiffs allowed to sue. Did FLAST overturn those cases?
1: Uh, essentially, yes. Yeah. So FLAST created an exception, rather, brought to Exceptions. the. Brox- Right. There's a broad presumption that you can't sue merely because you're a taxpayer. Flask creates a presum- an exception to that broad presumption under circumstances in which Congress has appropriated funds that are establishment clause violations. Right.
0: So Justice Harlan in dissent, and every scholar I've ever read since, every scholar I've ever read since, has said that's ridiculous. Because when someone – that holding is ridiculous because when someone comes – not the fact they shouldn't be able to sue but the fact that in the other cases they can't sue because when mm-hmm. Congress spends money allegedly in violation of the Constitution, if that's your claim, your injury is the same whether you're claiming an establishment clause violation, a due process violation, a commerce – doesn't matter what, what the source of the – where the source of the right comes from for a preliminary jurisdictional standing question, right – your injury is the same. Mm-hmm. I'm mad the government is violating the law. Now, Brennan said that the Establishment Clause is different and tried to prove it. But yeah. that wasn't Flast. Flast didn't say the Establishment Clause is different than any other provision. It just found standing in that case.
1: I, I hear you. I mean, I, I, yeah, I hear where you're coming from. I, I mean, I, I would only push back just a little, right? Okay. That is to say that, you know, a lot of constitutional violations by Congress are not – about expenditures. But some are, right? So, I mean, Sibelius, right? The So that is to say like, things like the Medicaid expansion and forcing states to do things. Yeah, That was a spending clause type of issue. But, um, you know, Congress violates the Constitution in ways that aren't about the appropriation of funds. And so the, the the nexus is between the appropriation of funds and the fact that one is a taxpayer. And so does that make sense? Or that's well, no, it doesn't. Because, sorry, it
0: so, doesn't because you- but unless Congress is violating the Establishment Clause by appropriating funds— That's but- right.
1: Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. So, no, this proves too much, right? Because, yeah, there's some other, there are other types of cases that would fall—that you would imagine right. you would be able to sue for as a taxpayer um, under this theory. But, yeah, but that's, that's, that's where the court has— like- So I went through all of that to
0: tell the audience the self-serving story, but I think it's going to be worth it. So—but I do think—I stand by the statement that I don't think there's any Supreme Court decision more universally criticized, or doctrine, than the court's taxpayer standing doctrines. Judge Easterbrook had a, had, had a taxpayer standing case that eventually went to the Supreme Court, and he denied—Judge uh, Easterbrook is a Seventh Circuit judge, very famous— and he denied on bank in the Seventh Circuit because he said the Supreme Court has created an unconscionably incoherent doctrine. Whatever I do is right. Whatever I do is wrong. They have to fix it. Then they didn't fix it. They just repeated it. Here's how Flass was written, um— And I I just just wanted to get to this because I think it's fascinating. So so the clerks were having lunch the day Flask was argued or together, and they were debating what was going to happen. They knew that a couple judges wanted to write historical opinion that taxpayer standing is not allowed unless it's the Establishment Clause because the one thing that we all kind of assumed the Establishment Clause meant was tax money can't be used for religious purposes. And – and, in fact, one of the justices in FLAS concurred on that ground that, that we're just going to say the Establishment Clause is different. That was one theory to allow standing in that case. Another theory was overturn the, the, all the other cases and say we're going to let taxpayers standing, no matter who, under any circumstances. And given the war Warren Court's aggression, I call it aggression, um, that might not have been surprising. So the conference happens and uh, – Justice Warren calls in my friend Charlie and he's going to and he's going to sign Charlie the opinion and and he says to Charlie we're going to find standing in this case and Charlie said yeah we kind of assumed that was going to happen because without taxpayer standing the establishment clause becomes unenforceable because no one is if you're hurt because of your religion you can bring a free exercise claim if someone puts you in jail for, you know Finds you or penalize. So the Establishment Clause is about symbolic help to religion, or in this case, monetary help to religion. Anyway, so Charlie said, yeah, we assume that. How how do you want me to write it? And Justice Warren paused. And Charlie says, how about I write the Establishment Clause? It's historically unique. It's a unique provision. Madison said, or Jefferson said, no taxpayer money goes to religion. I can write that opinion. And Warren goes, no, don't have the votes for that. And then Charlie says, okay, we'll overturn all the previous cases and allow taxpayer standing in all cases. No, we don't vote for that either. And Charlie said, let me be clear about this. I have to reaffirm both Frothingham and the Justice Black and a couple other taxpayer standing cases and say those were right, but we're going to allow taxpayer standing here, but I can't say the Establishment Clause is special. And Warren said, yep. And Charlie said, how do I do that? And Justice Warren said, that's your problem. And Charlie went back and tried to think for, for weeks. How do I write an opinion only allowing standing in this kind of case? And that's where we get the famous Flas test that everybody except maybe you agrees is incoherent because you're, the, the plaintiffs stake in the case – if you're claiming the government is spending money in a way that violates your constitutional rights, it doesn't matter whether it's the Establishment Clause, the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment. It does, it just doesn't matter for standing purposes. I brought all of that up just to say I wonder how common a thing it is. Uh, you don't have to comment, or you can. For justice to say to a clerk, write a draft opinion. I don't know how, <laughs> but this is the result we want and figure it out. Because that's what happened in Florida.
1: Yeah, I mean, I will, I will comment on it. I don't think that's common at all. Right? I, I think so. that I mean, clerks are the they're, the they're the agents of their of their justices. The justices took their Article Three oath. No clerk did, <laughs> but 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 um, but on your on the on the broader point, though, I mean, and I'm not I'm I'm not defending Flask's reasoning, um, but I but I will say right that Flas comes at a moment though where there was considerably more debate about the status of standing more generally and about the status of this particular doctrine, right? So uh, I write about this a little bit in, uh, in my piece, Undemocratic Restraint. Um, I love that piece, by the, love that. Piece. Oh, thank you. It's a great piece. Um, and the, Congress was debating whether or not itself uh, to get rid of the bar against taxpayer standing in the context of the establishment clause. Yeah. And they invited a bunch of fake course professors <laughs> to give their testimony about is this constitutional or is this prudential, right? And, yeah. and those sort of debates were happening around the time that FLAST was decided. If we understand FLAST as being a part of a prudential tradition um, in which the court was imposing self-restraint, um, in, in a way that you know, perhaps sometimes was reasonably transparent, um, and uh, you know that it was in the tradition of Bickle, and they're you know they're you know they're they're trying to kind of they're trying to get get this get this right in terms of when they intervene and when they don't. Um, there's no other way for these rights to these establishment clauses to be vindicated but for these private suits, and so um, so using its common law tradition, using its tradition of constructing self doctrines of self restraint. Um, If we think about FLAS that way, I think it feels differently than it does now, given, again, the court's insistence. This is all in the Constitution, all of it. Constitution, Constitution, Constitution. (laughs) Um, And then then it's like, well, then I think it becomes harder. Then you're like, well, wait, how from a constitutional standpoint, how is it the case that you can do this in the the establishment clause context and not in others?
0: Well, one way you could do it is, say, historically, Justice Brennan said this in a later case, the government can tax for this, that, or the other thing, and that's tough on the citizens unless it taxes to support religion. And, yeah. I, I, and everybody thought that's what FLAS stood for. They just didn't say it until the next yeah. four cases when in Establishment Clause cases the court said no standing even though it was an Establishment Clause case because it was the president yeah. spending the money, not Congress – and everybody has trouble with that, right? I mean, that's universal. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah no, yeah, no, you're there, there, we're on very much that page, so, <laughs> right, the same um, page, right? I mean, you basically, I mean, my reading of a case like that, right? The Hind case you're yeah. referencing.
0: That's the one Easterbrook others. said we can't decide because anything we decide is wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, there. I think you have. I mean, you have some. You have some justices who I think they just they didn't like Flast and that they were just going to find a way to narrow it no matter what. And um, so they wanted to kind of uphold precedent. And this was. And, but at the same time, they didn't believe this precedent was correct, and so they're narrowing it or at least declining to extend it. Um, and uh, but you you do have one justice at least, Justice Scalia, who right who who says this is, you know, Flast is wrong. We should be overturning Flast.
0: He this said it's is, incoherent, so- not, and he's right. He said it's incoherent, not just yeah, wrong. It, it, that's one of his—he concurred in the judgment in one of his most vituperative right. opinions. He called it a violation of the rule of law. I said, yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, I'm sorry for that digression, if the, but I, I thought, you know, um, I know you're an expert on this stuff, and that was good stuff. Fred, I really appreciate you being here. I have one last question for you. Um, right. So— I, I just, I just, I know predictions are terrible, and most people don't want to go on record with them. And if you decline, I understand.
1: I probably will, but okay, I'm gonna
0: listen. Justice Roberts and abortion. What do you think the future of
1: that is? Um, I probably should decline that, but no, nah. Uh, so it's just you and me. I, I, no, I, I just, just you and <laughs> a few hundred or a thousand of our friends, as the case maybe. Um, no, I, I think that the future. Well, well, for, well. Actually, part of why it's difficult to entirely predict the future of, of Roe is because I can't predict the future makeup of the court. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, assuming a, a pretty similar makeup to the court that we have now, yeah. or maybe even a slightly more conservative one, uh, if that were to happen, um, then I think that the future of Roe is to be significantly narrowed, such that there's barely anything left. Such that is to say, such that any state that wanted to essentially ban abortion could figure out a way to do it. Right. They probably they couldn't pass a law that literally says, you know, you know, every, you know, every person in our jurisdiction who becomes pregnant, you are compelled to give birth or you will be criminalized, right? They probably can't pass like a Georgia or Alabama type law. But they could figure out other ways um uh to 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 hollow out Roe. And I, th- I think that's where we're I think that's where we're headed if the court keeps the same general makeup that it has now.
0: Yeah, we, we agree on that. Um thank you, Fred. You know you teach at Emory, I teach at Georgia State. The schools are about never. four miles apart. Um but I live an eighth of a mile from Emory. Yet I've never felt so you know, my wife teaches at Emory. Yet I've never felt yeah. so far from you. I've never felt so far from. I mean,
1: okay, so, I'm uh, I'm next to Piedmont Park right now, so we're yeah we're we're very we're very very close. Right but now. only virtually. Uh,
0: I mean, it's the craziest yeah. thing. Anyway, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much, and uh, we might, I may have to may have to have you back so we can hammer out a few things we disagree about because we agreed on most of the stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks Fred. Take care.